0: Hello, this is Edwin Crozier again from the Franklin Church of Christ. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word. Perhaps you've wondered about what makes churches grow. The lesson that you're about to hear was a look at what some, quote, experts on growing congregations have said makes a church grow. You might be surprised to find out what it takes. So please open your Bible with me, and let's learn that church growth is not about food, fun, Or family life centers. Have you ever heard someone say that at the such and such church we're not nearly so concerned about numerical growth as we are about spiritual growth? I've heard lots of people make that comment. And typically, that kind of comment is made for one of two reasons. But neither of those reasons is valid. One reason it's often made is an extremely sad reason. For some, it's merely a cop-out. Because they're not wanting to do the things that it takes in order to draw people into the congregation, in order to convert souls, they find this is just a satisfying cop-out to sad their consciences and say, well, we're not really concerned about numerical growth. We're concerned about spiritual growth. The problem with that, brethren, is we must be concerned with numerical growth. And the reason we must be concerned with numerical growth is because the more numbers of people that we have as part of Christ's church is the more numbers of people who are going to be going to heaven. And that ought to be one of our ultimate concerns, getting more and more people on this path to forgiveness in heaven for eternity instead of allowing them just to to founder out in the world and in sin. The second reason is a little more noble. Many people say we're not so concerned about numerical growth as we are spiritual growth because many of us have become convinced that in order to have numerical growth within a congregation, we're going to have to compromise the truth. We've become convinced that all the churches that are growing are doing so because they are doing things that the Scripture simply will not allow a local congregation to do. And that is an extremely noble reason. Because, in fact, we must not ever, under any circumstance or for any reason, compromise the truth that God has put in His Word. Remember what we learned this morning as we talked about men in Proverbs. Buy the truth and sell it not. We must hang on to the truth and we must never compromise the truth. We must never compromise the pattern that Jesus Christ has established within the New Testament for His church. We must never compromise that. However, those who are studying issues of congregational growth today are finding that the things that cause churches to grow are not the things that are unscriptural. Tonight's lesson is going to be a different one from the majority of the lessons that I present. Mainly because most of the time, what I want to do is talk about some issue or go to a particular passage, but either way, just get in the Bible and say, what does the Bible say about this issue? But tonight is going to be a little bit different. There are men who have studied issues of congregational growth, and and these men, they're not concerned about what kind of church it is. They're just looking at churches that are growing. And as they've examined numerous churches in the United States of America and found the ones that are growing, they found a handful of things that are pretty well consistent in all of them. Now, I don't want to present this lesson saying that we ought to seek the advice of men. I just want to present this lesson to you to point out how amazing it is that these men who have studied all these things about congregations have found things and found keys in all these churches and they're growing and every single one of them are things that we can do. In fact, What we're learning from the lesson, whoops, I forgot a slide a minute ago, is that church growth is not about food, fun, or family life centers. Those who have studied these issues of congregational growth have typically found about nine keys that are present in the congregation, the majority of which are present in the congregation, and and, in growing congregations. The ones that don't have these things are the ones that are declining. And every single one of them, brethren, are things that we can do And therefore, we need to get it out of our minds that we're just stuck not being able to grow because because we can't do all those things out there that make congregations grow. We're going to look at these nine things very quickly, and we're just going to ask the question, can we do this? If so, then let's do it. Are you ready? All right, before we do it, let's have a word of prayer. Almighty God and Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you have allowed us to be together. We're thankful for each and every brother and sister in Christ who is here tonight. And for everyone that makes up the body here at Franklin, we're thankful for those who are not able to be here because of issues that could not be overcome. And Father, we pray for those who have simply chosen not to be here, that they might be strengthened, that they might attain a higher commitment and be more a part of the work here at Franklin. We're thankful for the grace of Your Son and His blood that washes our sins away, that makes all of this possible. We're thankful for this opportunity to come into Your presence to worship and honor and glorify You in song, in prayer, and by studying Your Word. And we pray that You would help us to understand the things that will help draw people into Your family. Father, we pray that You would strengthen us to water and to plant the seed and to water the seed. And we pray, Father, that You will give the increase. We we hope that we can be Your great servants, but we need Your strength. We're weak, and we need You to lift us up Set our feet on the high and level places. And Father, we pray that You would train us for the battle in which we find ourselves, that we'll be able to bend that bow of bronze, that we'll be able to to fight Your fight, and to obey You, and to serve You. Father, we love You, and we praise Your name, and we're so thankful that You have loved us. In Your Son's name we pray. Amen. The very first key, and this may surprise you, but those who have studied this, these, these church growth experts who have supposedly studied the The issue of what helps congregations to grow said the number one thing the churches need in order to grow, the number one thing that they find consistent in churches that are growing is they teach from the Bible. They teach from the Bible. Now, we need to keep this in mind. A lot of people are very ignorant of what the Bible says. And so they're not always very discerning when they come into a congregation about whether or not what's being said is actually what the Bible means. But what they want to see is a congregation that is based upon the Word of God, that comes from the Bible. The fact is, those who come into a church that claims to be Christian, they understand that the Bible is supposed to be the book upon which that congregation is founded. And so they don't want to come into the church and get three poems and a a song. They want to get, what does the Bible say? The churches that are growing are the ones that have that image of we are based on the Bible. We are teaching from the Bible. Now, here's my question to you. If churches can grow merely because they look like they're teaching from the Bible, how much more ought we to be able to grow when we really do teach from the Bible? When folks can come in and see that the Bible is being presented, that everything we do, we back up with a book, chapter, and verse, when they realize that we want to find authority from God's Word for what we do as individuals, what we do as congregation. If we're going to be saved, we're going to do it by the Bible. If we're going to organize the church, we're going to do it by the Bible. People, when they want to look into Christian churches, they want to see that folks are being honest and sticking with the guidebook. Can we do that? Is that something that this congregation can do? Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. If we want this congregation to grow, the experts are telling us you've got to teach from the Bible. Well, God said long ago. The Bible gives us everything we need. Can we do this? Absolutely. The second thing. Don't be distracted by the rain. (laughs) The second thing. Maintain high standards of commitment. Maintain... High standards of commitment. Those who are studying the churches that are growing, they're finding that the ones that are growing are the ones who maintain those high standards of commitment. They bring folks in and they expect them to do something. Just ask Wiley. Two weeks and he already had to preach a sermon. How about that? That's the kind of thing that we need to be doing. We need to be maintaining high standards of commitment. Not that everybody has to preach a sermon, but everybody's got to be doing something. We need to be here. We need to be committed to the work. That means we're going to be attending. And we don't need to back off of that. Luke chapter 9 and verse 23. Luke chapter 9 and verse 23, Jesus was saying to them to them all, If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow Me. How, how high of a standard of commitment is that? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I'm not sure that today we truly understand this idea of taking up the cross, but you can imagine people who have witnessed folks carrying their cross up that hill like Jesus did. They understood what it meant to be carrying a cross. I tell you what, it meant far more than making it back to the Sunday night assembly. Carrying the cross, high standards of Commitment. You know, this really just makes logical sense. There are a lot of folks that have the idea that we can draw people in and we can get folks here if we, if we let them realize that, you know, really you don't have to do much. You know, it's all about Jesus' grace. We just want you to be saved. And, and it really doesn't matter what you do after that. We can just get them in, get them saved. Everything will be fine with that. But is the congregation going to grow that way? There might be a surge of people initially who are really interested in that cheap kind of salvation. But because they're not taught to be committed, what's going to happen to them? They're not going to be committed, And folks who are not committed don't stay the course. I tell you, there are a lot of folks, even brethren, that are backing off on that and trying to, oh, you're making it too hard to be a Christian. <laughs> when you tell folks that they've got to attend and they've got to help with the Bible classes and they've got to do all of these things, you're just making it too hard to be a Christian. Remember what Jesus said. Take up your cross and follow me. We've got to maintain those high standards of commitment. When we do, the people that we bring in, we train them to be committed. What are they going to do? They're going to work because they're committed and the congregation is going to grow. Brethren, let me just point out that being committed means more than being a regular attender. It means more than that. Being committed to the work of the Lord means more than just being here at every service. We've got to have and maintain high standards of commitment. Have you ever wondered how it is that the Jehovah's Witnesses have people out knocking doors every Saturday? I'm not saying that knocking doors is the thing we ought to do, but I'm just impressed and amazed that they're doing it. You know why? Because once you become a Jehovah's Witness, you're led to believe that there's nothing else that you're supposed to be doing. And sometimes it's almost like we try to draw people in saying, well, you really don't have to do much. We just want you to show up now and then and wonder why they only show up every now and then. High standards of commitment. Let me ask you, can we do this? Can we maintain high standards of commitment? Is it scripturally authorized to expect people to take up the cross of Christ and to follow Him being committed to His work? And being committed to the work of His local congregation? Absolutely. We can do this. The experts are telling us this is what it takes to make a congregation grow. We can do it. We can teach from the Bible. We can maintain high standards of commitment. What about this third one? Maintain high standards of morality. More and more people today, more and more churches today, are trying to make more lax the standards of morality. There are churches today that tell us that it's not wrong to covet by laying down our money to try to get everybody else's money in the Tennessee State Lottery. There are churches today that would tell us that it's not a big deal if you want to go drink alcohol sometimes. There are churches today that really kind of turn a blind eye to people living together. There are even churches today that are suggesting that it's okay to be involved in homosexuality. All of these churches surround us in our world. But the ones that are growing are the ones that maintain high standards of morality. Can we do that? Of course we can. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 11 and verse 12 says, this is 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. How are these folks who are going to slander Christians glorify God in the day of His visitation? They're going to glorify God because they changed. Because they repented. Because they turned to Christ. And when Christ returns, they glorify God in His visitation, even though earlier they had slandered Christians. What was going to cause that? It says what causes that is when we keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles, when we maintain high standards of morality and spirituality. Again, this point simply makes logical sense. We can lower the standards of morality, and we might get an immediate influx of people. But because we have these lowered standards of morality, what's going to happen? They're going to feel free to slide back into sin. And when they do, let's just face it. Being involved in sin is not really congruent with being an active member of a body of the Lord. And we can lower those standards of morality and we cannot talk about it. We kind of cover it up and maybe try to hit on it on the side. Maybe sometimes... We'll bring people in, but they'll slide back into sin and abandon the faith. And in the long run, only the folks that we bring in and get them anchored in Christ to live by His standards of morality will stay the course, will grow individually themselves, and will help the congregation grow. Can we do this? Absolutely. Absolutely. Not a better problem with that. In fact, not only can we be doing this, but we must be doing this. Maintaining high standards of morality. Number four, convince every member that they're needed. The experts are telling us that the churches that are growing are the ones that are getting everybody as involved as they possibly can. Convincing them that there's something that you can do, something we need you to do. You don't have to do what everybody is doing. You don't have to do what the brother or sister across the aisle is doing. But there's something that you can do for the congregation. And we need you to be doing it. Look in Ephesians 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 14, the Bible says, As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the Head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. What does this passage point out? This passage points out that not only can we try to convince every member that they are needed. It says that every member is needed. There is a work that you are supposed to be doing. What this points out is that the congregation as a whole is only as strong as the sum of its parts. The congregation as a whole will only grow as each of us individually grow in Christ and increase our abilities and increase our work You are needed. There is something you can do. We need you to find it and start doing it. We'll help you. But we need you. Think about it. Again, this only makes logical sense. When folks believe they add meaning and are fulfilling a positive role within an organization... Aren't they much more excited about being there and being involved? And the folks who believe that, you know, I could just fade off the face of the earth and it wouldn't matter one bit, are they excited about being a part of it? We need folks involved. There are things that we do. We've got our guest evangelism, we've got Bible classes, we've got simple evangelism, we've got issues of being involved in our public assemblies. We've got people who need to be called and encouraged. We have the elderly that need to be helped physically and materially. We have the spiritually immature that need to be taught and grounded. And that doesn't just have to be within our Bible classes. Believe me, there is something that you can do, and we need you. Can we do this? Can we convince every member that they're needed? Are we allowed to do that scripturally? Is it all right for us to get people involved and let them realize we need you to accomplish something in the congregation, that you're an integral part of it? Absolutely. I'll tell you what if everybody believed that their presence was just as important as the guy who had to preach the sermon, they'd be here. Just think about this for a moment. Could you imagine what happened if one Sunday night I just decided, you know what, I just don't feel like showing up tonight. And we're talking last minute. We're not talking about traveling and making arrangements. We're talking about just last minute Sunday afternoon. I just decided, man, you know, I'm just too tired. I've had a hard week and I just don't feel like going. And I just didn't show up. Uh, It it amazes me, the number, and of course I'm preaching to the choir now, I realize. but, But we need to be passing these things on to other people. You know, it just amazes me the number of people that feel like, I don't have to be there because you can't prove I have to be there. Well, you know, really that's beside the point. We need you there. And we need to be convincing other folks. You see all the folks that didn't show back up tonight. We need to be talking to them about how much we need them. And they need to be a part of this work more than they are. Alright, I'll get down off of that since the folks who really need to hear it aren't here. Sorry about that. Essential number five, increase love and warmth among the brethren. Can we do that? Is that scripturally authorized to increase love and warmth among the brethren? According to the church growth experts, they're telling us that the congregations that are growing are focused on increasing love and warmth. Look in John 13. In John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. The Bible there says, a new commandment I give you. This is Jesus talking. He says that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus points out that that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be loving one another. In fact, in 1 Peter, it says that we obeyed the truth for unto a sincere love of the brethren. That's what we're supposed to be doing. You know, this is very interesting to me, by the way. There are a lot of churches today that what they're saying is that if we want to grow, we've got to show the world how much we love them. And so we need to have the, the, uh, the food ministries and the coat ministries and the inner city things and just show everybody how much we love them. But I find it interesting that Jesus, when He said, if you want folks to know that you're My disciples, He said, love... You see what the passage says? One another. Now, I'm not saying we don't love folks outside of the body of Christ. I'm just pointing out that Jesus said, if folks are going to know that you're my disciples, here's what you need to focus on. Loving one another. Because when people out in the world look at this community of believers and they see that that is a haven of love. You get in there and you've got love. People love you when you're a part of the Franklin Church. You think they'll want to be a part of that? Absolutely. Because out there, they've got people who hate them, people who stab them in the back, people who talk about them behind the back, slander and gossip, people who are trying to achieve their position and and, and bring them down. But they'll see in here. here are people that love me. People that want me to do better and be better. People who accept me where I am but push me to grow beyond that because they love me. Do you think folks would like to be a part of that kind of group? Absolutely. The church growth experts tell us, if you want a congregation to grow, you've got to increase the love and warmth among the brethren. Can we do that? It's scripturally authorized. Will we do that? That's one of the questions, isn't it? Grow in warmth and love for each other. Number six, have enthusiastic Bible classes. The church growth experts are telling us that one of the keys in most of the congregations that are growing is that they have enthusiastic Bible classes. The biggest religious change group in America right now are young families with small children because what we're finding is that people who themselves are not necessarily all that interested in having spirituality for themselves. They want it for their kids. There are a whole lot of people that say, "...it's too late for me, but I want things to be good for my kids." And they'll bring their kids into a church. And what amazingly happens is the more they hear that message of God's love for them, they find out it's not too late for me. And they submit to Jesus themselves. And one of the easiest ways to make that contact is through Bible classes. Having enthusiastic Bible classes. Now, I want to make a couple of comments regarding some objections that I've heard about focusing on Bible classes. Number one, Bible classes are not the, quote, and I'm only saying it this way because this is the way I hear people say it, the Church of Christ response to youth groups and family life centers. That is not Now, I realize there are a lot of churches that are treating Bible classes that way, but when Bible classes are done properly, all they are is an effective method of teaching the Gospel, of teaching the Word of God to people. That's all they are. Number two, Bible classes conducted by a congregation are not usurping the parents' authority and the parents' role in teaching their children. Bible classes, when done properly, are merely a supplement for those kids who have parents that are teaching them. Sadly, all too often, the issue is not that churches are usurping parents' authority or parents' role. It's too many parents just aren't teaching their kids like they're supposed to. And I'll point out that having Bible classes and having Bible classes for kids... Is not taking the parent's role, taking over the parent's role for teaching the kids any more than having a lesson here tonight is usurping your role of having to do your own Bible study. If you're just relying on what you get here, you've got issues. And if you're just relying on what your kids get in our Bible classes, you've got spiritual issues. All of this is done as a supplement to help and help push us along, but we still have all our own individual responsibilities. Thirdly, I just want to point out, that, there are, uh, that Bible classes are a great means of promoting spiritual growth for us. They're a great means of reaching out to the lost parents who are interested in their kids' souls. And they're a great means of preparing children to help them overcome the immorality that they will inevitably face if they live long enough. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 13. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 13 says, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. And that's what Bible classes are. It's the public exhortation and teaching. Are we allowed to do this? Are we allowed to have enthusiastic Bible classes? Absolutely. When we do them biblically, Are we talking about just having youth group activities and babysitting? Absolutely not. But enthusiastic Bible classes. I really think it would be better for us. Uh, I'm not going to say that anybody's going to go to hell if they call it Sunday school, but I really think it would be better for us if we said Bible class instead of Sunday school because it reminds us what we're doing. We're not having babysitting. We're not having just something for the kids to get together and do something. We're having Bible class. And it doesn't matter to me what age group we're talking about. If we can't say what we're doing is Bible class, then we ought not have that class. But enthusiastic Bible classes, Bible classes, we can do that. Number seven, have good, calm, steady leadership. The church growth experts are telling us that the congregations that are growing have calm, steady, stable leadership in place that is looking to the future, that is looking ahead and seeing where the congregation needs to go and working with the congregation and helping them. Can we do that? 1 Timothy chapter 3. In First Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, the Bible says it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Excuse me, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household... How will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he'll not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he'll not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Titus 1 has a similar list of qualifications. Why did God put these qualifications on the role of leadership within the congregation? I'll tell you why. Because He wants good, calm, steady, stable leadership within a congregation. And when you have that, when you have folks that are have these qualities. They can work together. They can lead together. They can look to the future and see where the congregation grows. They can shepherd the sheep, the flock. They can do that. And when we have that kind of leadership, it's going to help us grow. Can we do that? Is that scripturally authorized for us to make sure that we have good, calm, steady leadership to help Christians become better leaders? Of course we can. Number eight. Portray your worship as Special. When I'm talking here about worship, I am referring specifically to the congregational worship. What we do when we come together portray that as special. You know, for us, we come together, and sometimes it just becomes a humdrum. We're going, oh yeah, we do that. Oh, it's Sunday. Guess it's time to go to church. We're not going to talk about that statement. But the issue being that we're coming together with other Christians into the presence of the living God to worship and honor and glorify and praise Him, is there anything in which we can be involved that is more special than that? And yet some folks will say, hey, are you going tonight? Nah, it's just singing. Nah, that's just the prayer service. Is worship special? Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 beginning at verse 19. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews 10 and verse 19, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. How does this begin? We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Therefore, let us draw near. And then it talks about the assembling at the end of that. This is talking about the fact that because Jesus died, His blood allows us to come into the very presence of God and to worship and honor Him offering the sacrifice of our lips. Studying His Word, praying to Him, singing all of these things that we can do in order to glorify and honor God and serve Him and learn from Him. Is there anything more special than that? You know, the Old Testament Jews, only one person was ever allowed to come into the Holy of Holies. And he was only allowed to do it once a year. But we're allowed to do it any time. And when the congregation comes together, that's a time when we are doing it. I remember my father-in-law moved to Bridge City, Texas, which was only about 30 minutes from where I was living in Beaumont at the time. And he had told me about when he went to the bank. And he was opening up an account. And the lady that he was talking to, I, I don't really know how the whole thing came up, but she made some comment about the church that she was part of. It was called the Eagle's Nest Church or something like that. And she said, you know what, it's just the most exciting thing I've ever been involved in. You ought to check it out. Now, here he is, a preacher of the gospel. He knows where he's supposed to be this Sunday, but don't you know he was a little tempted to find out what was so exciting about that congregation? Can you imagine if we started treating what we're doing like that? I'll tell you what, it's just the most exciting thing I could be in. I'll tell you what, you need to come check this out because it is awesome. Or, don't go to church with me sometime. You, you wouldn't want to do that, would you? Can you tell the difference? Well, i tell you what, we're going to get together and we're going to sing. And you, just, you just haven't heard singing like that. No, it's not the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. You know, it's not just this, but what I tell you what, when the Christians come together and their voices blend praising God, it's just amazing. You really ought to come check it out sometime. When we can portray what we do as a congregation, when we assemble together as special, you think folks will want to be involved in that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the final thing, number nine. Have an evangelistic method that produces results. An evangelistic method which produces results. Now, they're not going to tell us what's the one thing that you need to do as far as evangelism, but they're just pointing out that you've got to have a plan for evangelism. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28. In Matthew chapter 28, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Verse 19, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He said, Go and make disciples. Not just sit back and hope somebody shows up and wants to be a disciple all on their own, but go and make them. Have a plan. Figure out a method." Do something. And that's where we ought to be. I was talking to somebody just this past week about this whole thing about evangelism. It's amazing to me how many Christians and how many congregations just aren't doing anything with evangelism. Why? Because everything we bring up, oh, that doesn't work. Oh, that doesn't work. We don't want to go door knocking because that doesn't work anymore. We're not going to do the gospel meetings because that doesn't work anymore. We're not going to do this because that doesn't work. We're not going to do that. I'm not saying that all those things are equally effective, but what I see from so many people today is we're saying it doesn't work, and finally we're not working, and guess what? It doesn't work. You know? I don't know what the most effective way to evangelize is but I do know doing something is more effective than doing nothing. And have a plan. We need to have a plan. We've started that with our guest evangelism. But there's oh so much more to that. And we need folks who are going to be involved in that and involved in so many other things. And, and folks are going to say, well, I just don't think this will work. Well, we don't know if it's going to work or not, but we better be working. We'll leave whether or not it's going to work up to God. That's His job. Our job is to plant and water. His job is to make it work. And when we have working Christians, I guarantee you, we'll have new Christians. When we're doing something instead of nothing. But remember, everybody's needed. That doesn't necessarily mean that you've got to be the one that's going to conduct a personal home Bible study, but we need you to do something. If it's inviting folks, if it's being here and just saying hi and welcome and we're glad you're here, we need people to do something. Have an evangelistic method, and it needs to be on purpose. Getting the job done. So, what have we learned here tonight? hear from these church growth experts, and we realize we're not just taking the advice of men, we're not just going to go find what some church growth expert says, and if he says it's, it's allowed, we're going to do it. But here's what amazed me. When I read this list, I found that we can do these things. Can we teach from the Bible? If we can do these things, say amen. Can we teach from the Bible? Are you sure? Alright, can we teach from the Bible? Can we maintain high standards of commitment? Can we maintain high standards of morality? Can we convince every member they're needed? Can we increase love and warmth among the brethren? Have enthusiastic Bible classes? Have good and steady leadership? Portray your worship as special? Have an evangelistic method that produces results? And, okay, y'all kind of went, went south. I know nine of them in a row is pretty tough. Can we do these things? Absolutely we can do these things. There's nothing wrong with any of these things. And so, if you have said to yourself, even from the noble reason of, we're more concerned about spiritual growth than numerical growth. Let's get that out of our minds. You know, the reality is, I'm pretty convinced that if a congregation is growing spiritually, that means members in the congregation are working harder and harder. And you know what happens when people in congregations grow spiritually? They bring other people into the congregation to grow spiritually. And if we're not growing numerically, I realize that there might be a situation in which that means there's just nobody out there that wants to obey. I realize that situation might exist somewhere. But brethren, I don't think it exists in Franklin, Tennessee. And if we're not bringing people in, I tell you, I think that means we're probably not growing spiritually as we think we are. Spiritual growth in Christians produces more Christians. We can do these things and we will do these things. And we will grow. And I am excited about all the possibilities out there because we can. And we don't have to worry that we have to do something unscriptural or turn from God's pattern in order to bring people into this congregation so that they can go to heaven. Do you all want more people to go to heaven? Absolutely. Let's work at that. I hope this look at what helps churches grow was beneficial and edifying to you, learning that really what it takes to make a church grow is to simply follow God's Word and the pattern that He has laid out for us. Let's remember that we need to teach our Bibles. We need to be committed and moral and have good, strong, steady, stable leadership, enthusiastic Bible classes, all the things that help make a congregation A church of the Lord, doing things His way, serving and glorifying Him. We don't need unscriptural practices to help a church grow. Perhaps you have some questions about church growth, about the church in general, and what God's plans are for His universal church and for His local churches. If you have any questions, please give us a call at 615-794-2359, or you may contact us through our website, www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. Perhaps somebody is giving you this lesson on CD or audio tape. If that's the case, let me encourage you to go to that website I just mentioned. Again, it's franklinchurchofchrist.com. We have numerous lessons there, both in audio and outline format, and you're free to download and use them in whatever way you believe will honor and glorify God. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. But more importantly, may you richly bless God.